Uh, we, it was a long week, so I didn't get a chance to get my technical difficulties uh, fixed up, so we'll have to go without the, the uh, overhead for one more week. So if you brought your Bibles, which I hope you did, uh, open them up to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to finish up today. Um, this is a study that we started in January of 2016, and here we are. I think this is the last Sunday in March, and we'll, we'll finish up today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we'll be in verses 13 through 24. So please, uh, since I won't be able to put it up on the screen, please follow along with me uh, if you will. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is Final Instructions. Final uh, instructions. And I, as I said, we will finish up our study today. Now, as I mentioned last week, very often when you come to the end of one of Paul's letters, it doesn't really matter if it's Philippians or Ephesians or, or uh, uh, Thessalonians or, or any of those letters, when you get to the last chapter, uh, everything, Paul, it's like he's got a bunch of stuff he wants to say and he just kind of throws it in. And sometimes it's not very well connected. It's kind of like a as I said last week, it's kind of like a P.S. Uh, on the end of a letter. And he just throws a bunch of stuff uh, in there. And that's exactly what we find here at this uh, last uh, chapter of, of 1 Corinthians. Uh, uh, in these last verses, he's got, you know, he's got several things that, um, that he wants to, to say. And so what he does uh, is in verses 13 and 14, he begins with a list of five imperatives or five commands that he wants the church to follow. So let's first start off reading in verses 13 and 14. And what you'll notice here is five commands that he's giving to the church. He says this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Now the first thing you're going to notice, these are not optionals. These are commands, these are imperatives from the Holy Spirit that He wants that church to follow, and of course He wants us to follow. We're in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 through 14. And another thing to notice as we move through today's verses is they're the positive side of a lot of negative things that the Corinthian church has been engaging in. You know, as I said, we started this study, January was a year ago. And we went through all these chapters and all these verses. And the Corinthian church, we said, remember what we said? What church did we equate uh, the Corinthian church to? What city? Las Vegas. Las Vegas. It was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Whatever, whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Um, it, was a, it was a messed up city. And the church was a messed up church. It was bringing people into the church with all kind of problems, all kind of bad theology. And they were doing just all kind of bad stuff. So Paul spends a whole letter trying to straighten them out. And, he, and he, gets, he spent all this time saying, don't do this. You don't need to be doing that. Don't sue one another, right? Don't, don't get drunk at the Lord's Supper. Don't do this. Don't do that. And so he gets here to the end and he kind of flips it over and he says, do this. Do these five things. So it's kind of the positive side of all the negatives that they've been engaging in. So what he does really is he gives us here five principles for Christian living. And he's basically saying to the church, do these five things and it'll reverse all that bad stuff that, that you've been doing. Focus or concentrate on these five things. So I want to go through each of those five imperatives that he gives us here in the last chapter. The first one, he says, be watchful. In other words, 
what he's saying here is stay away. Um, the Greek word that's used there can be, it can actually be used both ways. It can mean stay physically awake or it can mean stay spiritually awake. Now, obviously, uh, here he's not telling them to stay physically awake. He's telling them to stay spiritually uh, awake. This same word is used 22 times in the New Testament it, uh, when it's in talking about uh, the Christian life. The Christian life, folks, has to be a life where you stay spiritually aware. It can't be this life of slumber. It can't be a lazy life where you just kind of drift through and, you know, whatever happens, happens. Paul says you've got to be spiritually awake and you've got to be spiritually alert and in tune uh, with what's going on around you. So you've got to be alert and watchful. Now this raises the question, as a Christian, what are we to be alert and watchful for? Well, the Bible gives us several things. Number one, it tells us to be alert and watchful for Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone uh, to devour. I was looking at an old survey. If y'all have been around me very long, I love surveys. I like to see what people out there... You know, I, I think... You know, most of us think a certain way. And doesn't it kind of shock you sometimes to look at surveys and say, all those people believe differently than, than you do? I just... I like that stuff. I read a 2009 Barna survey, and they found that a large portion of Americans don't believe the devil really exists. In fact, what was scary about this survey, this survey was done, I think, in 2010. Nearly 60% of people who identified as Christians, now these aren't unbelievers, these are people who identify as Christians, nearly 60% of them said the devil was only a symbol of evil, that he wasn't real. Only 25% of, of people who profess to be Christians believe that the devil was a real person or a real entity. Now, guys, that is a, not only is that a sad commentary on American Christianity, it is also extremely dangerous. And by the way, it fits right into what the devil wants. What I was thinking about, the Bible defines or, or, or uses the analogy of a lion to identify Satan. Can you imagine a lion, how great it would be for him if he's, if he's slipping up on two little deer and and, and one deer says to the other deer, man, we need to watch out for that lion. And the other deer says, man, that thing, that, that doesn't exist. Are you crazy? That, that, that thing ain't real. And, and, and right, you know, the lion's just slipping up on them, and they're just like, one, that one is just in this state of bliss. That stuff ain't real. See, that's exactly what the devil wants. He, he loves it when people don't believe he's real. That, that fits perfectly uh, into his schemes. That's what any predator would want. We have to be alert to Satan. The Bible says he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his aim. Your life, the lives of your family, the lives of your friends, you have to be alert to what's going on. The good news is, let me tell you something about Satan. He's like a football coach with three plays. That's all he's got. He's got three plays. Now, he disguises them so you can't see what's coming, but he's really got three plays. Uh, 1 John 2.16 says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. He'll use the desires of the flesh, he'll use the desires of the eyes, and he'll use the pride of life. to get One of those three things is what he's coming with. 
Now, he'll disguise it, and he'll pretty it up, and he'll make it so that it looks like, that's okay. But those are the three things that he's coming with. And again, if you're alert to that, you'll, you'll know that he's coming. Remember, it's the person who's not alert who will be taken. So what are we to do? We are to be alert, and we are to be watchful for, for Satan. Another thing the Bible tells us to watch out for is temptation. Mark 14, 38 says this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now that is pretty... The Bible tells us to watch out for Satan, but it also says to watch out for temptation. And you would think those two are pretty close, but there is a big difference between those two. There's a big difference between those two. Listen to James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by Satan. Is that what it says? Is that what it says, anybody? No. Listen to this. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, Satan can't make you want something that you don't already want. He, he knows you. He knows what you like. He knows the things that you want. And those are the things that he uses to, to tempt you. So when, when the Bible says watch out for temptation, one of the things it's telling us is you need to be alert to your own desires. You need to be awake and know the things that tempt you because those are the things that Satan is going to use to pull you away. You can't just go skipping through the world, uh, exposing yourself to anything and everything and pretending like it's not going to make a difference. Of course it is. Of course it is. So when it says be alert to temptation, what the Bible's saying is be alert to your own self. Keep your eyes open to your own desires because those are the things the enemy will use to pull you away. Another, a third thing we are to watch out for is apathy and indifference. Revelation 3, <clears throat> 2 through 3 says this, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Of course, if you go read that in context, he's talking to the church at Sardis. And that church had just sort of floated off into apathy. You see, there's a real danger that Christians are prone to. And that is to kind of, we get to a certain point, and we kind of get self-content, don't we? Well, I'm okay now. I, I, I've got a good knowledge of the Lord. I've got a, a good relationship with Him. And, and what happens is we'll start stop fighting against our sin. We'll stop fighting against our weaknesses. We'll start fighting against, we'll stop fighting against our disobedience. You can never do that. From the time you're born again to the time they put you in the grave, you will continue. You should be fighting, fighting, fighting the good fight of faith. So don't let yourself drift off into apathy and indifference. You need to stay alert to that. So take a good look at your life. Because when you get to the place where you're comfortable with your sin, if you get to the place where you're comfortable uh, with your weaknesses and your disobedience and you're no longer trying to deal with that kind of thing, that is when you are, you are a place where you're about to get into trouble. So watch out for that. The fourth thing the Bible tells us to watch out for is the Lord's coming. Mark 24, 42 says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Again, this is not talking about physically awake, is it? We, we have to sleep. It's not saying we got to stay awake 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. What he's saying is stay spiritually awake. 
spiritually alert. It doesn't mean, by the way, folks, when it says to watch for the Lord's coming, he's not saying you walk around all day with your head looking in the eastern sky. That, that's, not, that's not the point here, right? It means that inside, in our heart, we are to live our lives with the reality that Jesus Christ is coming again and he's coming soon. That's how we live our lives every day. Today could be the day that he comes. And if he doesn't come today, you wake up tomorrow, today could be the day. Watch your life in this regard. You only have so much time to do what the Lord has called you to do. And it is over before you know it. Time is gone and it cannot be regained. It cannot be recaptured. So live every day with the reality that Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, the Corinthians, by the way, had blown it in all these areas. They, they were not alert. They were not spiritually awake. They had let sin come into the church. Uh, they had sexual sin in the church. They weren't loving one another the way they should. They had let false teachers into the church. They were being, uh, they were being captured by temptation. They were, they were apathetic. They were indifferent. They were smug. They were self-content. They thought they had it all together. Their, their teaching had gotten so bad. Their theology had gotten so bad. They were denying the resurrection. I mean, this church was a, was a mess, and a lot of it was because they weren't alert. They had allowed Satan to come in and corrupt their church. So Paul is saying to them, look, you can reverse all of that if you'll just wake up and stay alert. In 1 Corinthians 14, 15, uh, 15, 34, you remember he said this, to the Corinthian church, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. You see, that was their problem. Spiritually, they had gone to sleep. Spiritually, they were not awake and it caused them a lot of problems. The second thing that Paul tells us to do in our first two verses, 13 and 14, is we are to stand firm in the faith. Now, how many of you people, how many here like people who stand firm in something? I mean, don't we all, we like people who know what they believe. I don't like people that are wishy-washy. You talk to them this week, they're over here. Next week, they're over there. They just go with the flow. Whatever the crowd thinks, that's what they go. Man, I don't like that. We want people to be firm. We want people to be steadfast. We want people to know what they believe and really hold on to it. But here's what I want you to see here. When Paul says stand firm, he says stand firm in something he says, stand firm in what? In the faith. This faith that Paul's talking about isn't some generic faith. It's not somebody saying, oh, I believe in a God or I believe in a higher being. It's not someone saying, oh, I'm a spiritual person or, or I have faith in something out there bigger than me. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not the kind of faith Paul is talking about. He is talking about the faith. Do you understand, folks, in Jude 1 through 3, Paul, uh, it, right, Paul writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is one faith. There's not another. That faith is the faith that was delivered to us uh, through, the, through the revelation of God's Word and in the person uh, of Jesus Christ. Anything else is, is baloney. Paul says, stand firm in that faith, in the faith, the one and only faith. Uh, in Ephesians 4, 5, Paul says, there's one Lord, there's one faith, and there's one baptism. Everything else is, 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 is phony. Everything else is a copy. Everything else is counterfeit. 
This is the faith, a faith in Jesus Christ that is based on the revelation of God's Word. Paul says, stand firm in that faith and nothing else. So if somebody comes along and they say, I'm a, I'm a person of faith, you find out what faith they're talking about. And if it's not faith in Jesus Christ, it's not real. It might be something they, they use to, to, to pacify themselves, make themselves feel better. Paul says you and I are to stand firm in the faith, the one faith that was delivered to the saints. Remember, one of the problems the Corinthians were having, if you go back, they were being swayed by people other than the Word of God. They had uh, people, they had these philosophers coming into the church. They had all these other people that were saying, this is okay and that's okay. They were listening to the wisdom of the world and letting the world influence uh, their church and influence their behavior. Paul says, don't do that. Stand firm in the faith. Don't let anything move you away from the faith. And listen to me. One of the things I love about this book is it was written 2,000 years ago, but it is so relevant for you and I today. Those same dangers that face that Corinthian church uh, face us today. We cannot let anything move us from the Word of God. Nothing. I don't care if every church in this county over the next five years or ten years, begins to move away from the Word of God. We cannot do it. If we have to stand by ourselves, we will stand by ourselves, and we will stand firm on the faith that was delivered to the apostles 2,000 years ago. Because that faith alone has the power to save and the power to keep. Nothing else. So Paul says, stand firm in the faith. Number three in his list of five, Paul says, act like men. Now, let me, if you're here today and you're a lady, let me say something here. Paul, when he says act like men, he's not contrasting that and saying don't act like a woman. That's not what he's saying. In fact, if you go back and look at the Greek word, what he's saying, the Greek word has the whole idea of maturity. Instead of contrasting men and women, what he's really doing here is he's contrasting men and children. What he's saying is act like an adult, not like a child. That's what he's saying. He's not, so don't take that wrong. He's not saying act like men, not like a woman. He's really saying act like a mature, grown person, not a little child. I was thinking, as I was kind of meditating on this verse this week, I was thinking about children and how they act and think. One of the things that you find with children is that they, they tend to be fearful. I, was, uh, I had my little granddaughter out the other day at the sheep pen, and, and there was a lizard. And uh, I, I grabbed it, you know, and I was holding it up to my face and my ear, and I was trying to say, see, this is, he, he won't hurt you. And, buddy, I, I put it over to her, and she, you know, she, I mean, she just about had a meltdown over that lizard. Because that's what children do, right? They, they're, they're fearful of things they don't really need to be, to be fearful of. But at the same time, if you've ever noticed, um, uh, uh, and, and by the way, as grown men and women, we, we gain knowledge and we find, well, that's not real, or that's not really dangerous, and we, we kind of get more confident and we act a different way. We, we tend not to be fearful of things we shouldn't be fearful of. But another thing about children is they aren't watchful, are they? In other words, they don't see, they, they're scared of things they shouldn't be scared of, but then they're not scared of things they should be scared of. They're, they're not very watchful. They don't see hidden dangers out there. That's why we're constantly behind them, you know, to make sure they don't do this, they don't do that, because they don't see the real dangers. But as men and women, that's what Paul's saying, act like men, act like adults, 
understand what there is to be scared of and understand what there isn't to be scared of. Be watchful, be alert, be, be mature, be aware of the real dangers. And finally, another thing you can't get away from with children, you can just go volunteer in the nursery if you don't believe this one are true. Children are selfish. Children think about themselves. Um, they bicker and they fight over things that mean nothing. See, this is exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church. He says this, But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? Paul says there in the church you're fighting with one another. You're jealous over one another. You're bickering with one another. Paul says you're acting like children. I mean, Paul probably had volunteered in a nursery at some point. I mean, he knew what, what children were like. He said you're acting like children. That's why he says act like men. Act like grown-ups. Act like adults. Get away from that. You see, the Corinthian church was infantile and immature. So Paul says to them, grow up. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Be adults. Think like grown people. Uh, and, and by the way, if you're thinking, how do we grow? Well, Paul tells, uh, Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. He says this, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. You get the Word in you. You do exactly what you're doing here this morning. You get, you get under a Bible teacher, you get in your own study, and you study the Word of God. You let that Word get in you. And as you do, it's like, it's like milk. It just begins to fortify, it begins to strengthen, and you begin to grow into adult. Number four, out of the five things that Paul tells us, he says, be strong. Be strong. Now, I want to take just a little bit of time with this one because I can tell you here we share a common trait with the Corinthians. In fact, a common trait with, with all humanity. That is, we all tend to think we're strong. There's not a person here that, that you look at something happen to somebody else and you'll say, that'll never happen to me. I'll never fall into that temptation. I'll never do that. I'm stronger than that. See, we all think that. Um, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is writing to the church earlier. He said this, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as, you, as if you didn't receive it? He says, you already have all you want. You've already become rich. Without us, you've become king. See, they thought, we've got everything we need. We are strong. We're, we're, we're rich. We're, we've got all the gifts we need in the church. We don't, we don't need anything else. The, the devil can't come against us. I'll never fall for that temptation. We'll never be like that other church. That's just human nature to think we got it all together. We'll never do that. And the Corinthians were the same way. See, they thought they were strong. Later in the letter, Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands be careful, take heed, be alert, lest he turn around and fall. You see, it's human nature to think you're strong. But Paul is warning them and he's warning us. 
You need to be very, very careful. Make a realistic assessment of your life and recognize the places where you're not that strong and then do something um, about it. So what do you do? How do you get stronger? If there's places in your life that you're weak, how do we strengthen ourselves? Well, here's the odd thing about the Christian life is that really for, you can't really do anything per se. Here's the thing about being strong. Your strength as a Christian cannot come from yourself. Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the power of what? His might. Uh, Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. In fact, Jesus said, The weaker you are in yourself, the stronger I become. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So it's all, you, everything is about Him. You rely on Him. You ask Him to help you. You let the Holy Spirit help you. It's really not much you can do other than that. Um, Ephesians 3.16 says this, Paul is praying that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. In other words, how do you grow? You get in the Word and you yield to the Holy Spirit. You get in the Word, you yield to the Holy Spirit. You get in the Word, you yield to the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you, one day it's like lifting weights. You know, if you lift weights and, and from one day to the next, you can't really see a difference. But all of a sudden, if you go back three months or six months and you think, wow, something's really changed, that's the way it is. Get in the Word, yield to the Spirit, and you'll look up one day and you will be strong. You will be strong through the power of His might. Number five, Paul says this, be loving in all that you do. Now, this is such an important one because it ties all those others together. I mean, think about it. Here you are. Paul has just given you your marching orders, almost like a sergeant barking these orders out. He's like, all right, stand firm, stand strong, stand alert, stand mature. And then he says, oh, yeah, by the way, the attitude I, while you're doing all this standing the attitude I want you to have is I want you to have an attitude of love. I want you to put others ahead of yourself. You see, you got to have both. If you've got too much love and not enough standing strong and mature and alert, you just, you just got a lot of sentimentalism, right? You'll let anything go. But if you do too much standing and not enough loving, all you've got is a lot of ugly legalism. It, it takes both mixed together. By the way, the Corinthians, not loving. They were not, they did, one of the places they fell down and they failed more than anywhere else is they did not love one another as they should. They did not put the needs of others ahead of their own. But remember early on, they're fighting, they're picking sides. I'm under Paul, no, I choose Apollos, I choose Peter. They were picking sides in the church, they were divided, there were cliques all over the place. In chapter 6, they're suing each other. You know, they got a problem with somebody. Instead of getting together and, and mediating it in the church, they would go out to a court of law and sue one another. In chapter 7, marriage partners were depriving each other. In chapter 8, stronger brothers were running roughshod over weaker brothers. By the time you get to chapter 11, they're coming together for the Lord's Supper and people are getting drunk. People are hogging the food so that people come late. There wasn't anything left for them to, to have. They just had an unloving approach in everything they did. And so Paul wants to reverse that. And he says, in all that you do, do it with an attitude of love. Now, 
we come to verse 15, and we're going to close out this letter by looking at these last few verses in these 15 minutes. And as we go through them, I want to summarize up front by saying they may not seem important to you. When you read those last verses, you just kind of go through them real quickly, and they think, well, there's really nothing here. But what I want you to see is Paul has just said, let everything be done in love. And then these last verses are going to give us an example of love in the fellowship. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Does anybody here have a King James version? All right, what does that say? Where it says they have devoted themselves to the saints, what does your King James say? Okay, is it King James or New King James? Say that again. They have addicted themselves. That Greek word literally means addicted. Now that is cool. That they, he says, you, let me read that again. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Achaia was a region of Greece. It's where Corinth was. Just like Tallahassee is in Florida, Corinth was in Achaia. It was a region. And he says they were the first converts. And it says they have addicted themselves to the ministry or the service of the saints. I was thinking about that, that this week. You know, when we talk about addiction, we, we think about drugs, don't we? What are some, what are some uh, things about addiction? We think about addiction being a habit, an, an overpowering desire or, or compulsion to do something. We think about uh, a tolerance. You know how you hear people that, that are addicted to drugs, they have to do more and more, don't they? After a while, that, that, the, what they did before doesn't work, so they have to do more. Can you imagine if, if someone was addicted to the service or the ministry? That, man, that's just not enough. i gotta do, I got to do more. Dependence. Uh, when you think about being addicted to drugs, you think about a, 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 a psychological and a physiological dependence. Man, wouldn't it be great if we were just dependent on ministry? If we, I love that word, that addicted. Here is a, by the way, here is a household. You've probably never heard of Stephanus. He's not a famous guy. But here is a household who had no official appointment. Nobody said, oh, I appoint him an apostle, or I appoint him a deacon, or I appoint him something else. He, he wasn't assigned an official title or an official office or an official ministry by any means. They just took it upon themselves to devote themselves to the ministry of the saints. Man, can, can I just say, may that be said about each one of us? What else would I want on my tombstone to say he was addicted to the service of the saints. I mean, buddy, if that's written on your tombstone, that would be a, a legacy. Now, look at verse 16. Look what Paul says. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. He's talking about Stephanus. Men and, men and women that are addicted to service, that are devoted to ministry, Paul says be subject to people like that. Get yourself under people like that. You see, this should remind us that in the church, respect and submission is earned, not appointed. Okay? You, you're, you don't, you're never going to get appointed to a ministry until you've proven yourself faithful in the things that you do on your own. William Barclay, a British commentator, wrote this. In the early church, 
willing and spontaneous service was the beginning of official office. A man became a leader of the church not by appointment, but because his life and work marked him out as one to be respected. All those who share the work and toil of the gospel command respect, not because they've been appointed by a man to an office, but just because they are doing the work of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the way it should work? We, we, a man becomes an elder, not because somebody just appoints him, but because you look at his life and his life says he's already an elder. He's already doing the work of an elder. He already commands the respect of an elder. Therefore, let's make it official. See, that's how it works. So, you know, you don't just one day somebody just say, you're going to do this, and all of a sudden you become that thing. No, the Spirit's already been working in you. The Spirit's already been maturing you, growing you, taking responsibility for things. That's how it's supposed to work in the church. The church is not a power play, folks. We should not be a bunch of people trying to get on top of one another. In fact, wouldn't, the, wouldn't it be great if the church was a bunch of people who were in a mad rush to get under one another? No, you do that. No, no, you do that. No, you go. No, I, I'm not going first. You go first. You're, you. That's the way we should be. But getting under the right people, finding the people in the church that command respect because of their life, and then getting under and submitting uh, to those people. We should be looking for people like Stephanus in a house like his house, people who are addicted to service. And we should not only respect those type of people, we should willingly submit to their leadership. Look at verse 17. Paul says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus. Now, by the way, that's the same guy. I rejoice. Remember, Corinth is, Paul is in Ephesus. Corinth is a few hundred miles away. And Paul's in Ephesus. And I guess the Corinth church sent some people over to visit him and bring him a letter with some questions. Paul says in verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. You know what? When I read that, I thought, man, that is so true. You see, one of the reasons I love coming to church is because there are people here that refresh me. Yes or no? There are, man, you go out in that world and you, and you deal with that world all week. And it's just, there's just, let me tell you what those people out there will do. They'll drag you down. They'll pull you down. But there are people here at River of Life who will refresh you. You leave here on Sunday and you think, man, this is why I'm doing all this. These are, there's still good people in this world. That's what Stephanus did. He, would, he refreshed Paul. Paul says, I'm sure when Paul met him and saw what he was doing and saw the fruit of his ministry, Paul says, this is why I'm doing this. Lives are being changed. The world's being changed because of, uh, of my ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what, when we come in here, I can tell you, Scooter's not here today, but every time I see Scooter and talk to Scooter, he refreshes me. He refreshes me. He, I think, man, this is what it's all about. That man, 16 years ago, was on the other side, and now he's a, one of the godliest men, and that should refresh us. That's what Stephanus did. I hope that's said about each one of us. That I hope I refresh somebody. I hope you refresh somebody because that's what people who are devoted to the service of God will do. Okay? Let's look at verses 19 through 20. And we're getting close to closing it out. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Remember, church in those days was held in people's houses. 
They didn't have church buildings where they all went and met. People went from house to house. They ate together. They fellowshiped together. They worshiped together, right? There was love. There was sharing. There was hospitality. That's what it was all about. Now, today, the meeting place has changed, has it not? We don't meet in houses anymore. We meet in buildings, or in our case, a, a, a dome or a tent. That's all fine. But let me tell you, this verse should remind us of something. Church is not an institution, it's a family. And the building we meet in should be like a home. Just like in those days, when you came together, there was fellowship, there was love, there was hospitality, and there was sharing. Listen, that doesn't change because we come here. It should be the same type of love, the same type of hospitality, the same type of fellowship, the same type of sharing. If we forget that, see, that stuff should not change. The church is still about those things. If we lose that, then you've lost one of the biggest parts of what the church is supposed to be all about. So we've got to be alert and, and keep that in mind. Look at verse 20. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Listen, we don't, in some cultures, in that culture then, they would kiss one another. You see that in some Middle Eastern cultures today when, when people greet, you know, they'll kiss it once on one side and once on the other. We don't really do that here but what he's saying here is show them, right? Show them. If you, you know, if you come into the home, if you came into my home to visit me and I just ignored you, what, what, what am I doing? Is that love? Is that warmth? Is that hospitality? No, I should be right up there. I should give you a hug. I should give you a hearty handshake. I could tell you how glad I am to see you. That's what Paul is saying. Greet them. Show them. Don't just let somebody come into this place and, and leave out and nobody, nobody put a hand on them and said, man, we are, we are so glad you're here. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Looks, we'll close now with verses 21 through 24. Paul says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. By the way, Paul had a secretary that would write his letters for him. He would dictate and his, his secretary, there's, a, there's another word for it, but they would write it. A lot of people think he had problems with his eyes and he wasn't able uh, to write. And, and one of the books he says, uh, see with what large letters I write. He, he had eye problems, so he had to write really big letters. And so he says here at the end, I, Paul, write this greeting, not the whole book, but this greeting with my own hand. Then he says this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And those three words that popped out at me there is, Our Lord, come. I tell you, Paul, the man was beat. The man was shipwrecked. The man was stoned. The man was left for dead. The man was abused. The man was... He went through everything. And I tell you, he went it all, but he kept his eyes on the prize. And even here at the end of this letter, one of the final three words out of his mouth is, Jesus, come. Come come. It goes back to what we said earlier. Paul lived. When he says, be watchful, and we already said one of the things we're to watch for is the coming of the Lord Jesus, Paul lived that out. He was always looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.